Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. It's our great pleasure to welcome back Carla L. Peterson, Professor Emerita at the University of Maryland and author of Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. Black Gotham has been referenced as the resource for the Scots, Peggy, Dorothy, and Arthur, a Black middle-class family living in Brooklyn, New York, in Julian Fellows' drama series, The Gilded Age, currently in its second season on HBO and streaming on Max. Set in New York City in the 1880s, The Gilded Age follows the social war between the old money Van Rynes and their new money neighbors, the Russells. In a world on the brink of the modern age, one must decide to follow the rules of society or forge a new path. Carla was our guest for episode 28 of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we explore Black representation in the Gilded Age through the Scott family. Carla L. Peterson's scholarship focuses on 19th century African-American literary and cultural studies. Black Gotham is Carla Peterson's riveting account of her quest to reconstruct the lives of her 19th century ancestors, who were both Black Manhattanites and Black Brooklynites. As she shares their stories and those of their friends, neighbors, and business associates, She illuminates the greater history of African-American elites in New York City. Listen to episode 28 of our podcast to hear more about Black Gotham and Carla's family. In addition to Black Gotham, a family history of African-Americans in 19th century New York City, Carla has published numerous essays and a second book, Doers of the Word, African-American Women Speakers and Writers in the North, 1830-1880. For Black Gotham, Carla has appeared on C-SPAN Book TV, wrote for the New York Times online Disunion Project as well as its City Room page, and recently Carla was a featured speaker at the New York Historical Society. Carla Peterson is currently at work on a new project, Urbanity and Taste, The Making of African-American Modernity in Antebellum, New York, and Philadelphia. In this podcast, we'll focus on taste as a value reflected in the lives of 19th century Black middle-class communities in Manhattan and Brooklyn. We will also look at how the separate and elite lives of 19th century New York old money represented by the Van Rynes, new money in the Russell family, and the Black elite as portrayed by the Scott family are interpreted for the Gilded Age. Carla, welcome back to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, in our last conversation, we were talking about taste, and you were mentioning that you were working on a book about taste. You also talked about taste in your presentation with the New York Historical Society in October. We like to look at taste, particularly as it shows up in the life of the Scott family in Black Brooklyn and Black Manhattanites of the time. What is the role of taste for Black Brooklyn and Black Manhattanites in the late 19th century, and how is taste defined? So that's a really huge question, and I'm going to start with a preamble by saying, first of all, a couple of words about 
what I think um, my job is here and the large, some of the larger issues, and then I'll go into taste. So I think you invited me on to give a historical background and context to uh, the Black Brooklynites in the uh, Gilded Age um, and uh, historical background and context. And what I want to really focus on or talk about is what I think Julian Fellows uh, got right, um, what he did creatively, imaginatively, and accurately, um, and also where I think he was maybe misguided and left some things out. In that line of thought, the first thing I wanted to say was I haven't looked back at season one, but looking at season two, I was a little bit dismayed about the construction of the narrative. I felt more than in season one, although I might be misguided and not correct there, that the black, uh, basically a subplot to the main plot of the whites in Manhattan was very much a subplot. And that blacks like, especially the Scott family, and also T. Thomas Fortune and his newspaper exist really only in relation to whites. They don't seem to have any independent existence of their own, uh, but really exist in relation to whites so that it's a question of what blacks are doing better than whites or what whites are doing better than blacks. And that somewhat uh, bothered me. Um, I would have liked to have seen a fuller representation of Blacks on their own. Uh, along with that, and this is something that we'll come to eventually, I'm sure, I feel that the white community, the Manhattan and uh, community, is a lot more, uh, is a lot richer. The description is richer and described to a fuller extent. Whereas when you think about it, the black community in 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 Brooklyn is really limited to Peggy's family. It's as if they stand in for all blacks of the period. And then of course T. Thomas Fortune is an extension of Peggy's life. So I'm a little bit disappointed by that. But um to plunge in on with your question, you had asked me um, in the beginning to uh, address the the first episode in the question of Easter Sunday, and I think that's a wonderful way in in which we can start talking about one taste and two community. Yeah, well, for our listeners, there the first episode takes place on Easter Sunday, and we see Easter Sunday. In Manhattan, and we see Easter Sunday with the Van Ryans and the Russells and their household staff, and then there's Easter Sunday in Philadelphia with the Scots at a church, and um, they have other matters to deal with while they're in Philadelphia. So, go ahead, Carla. So, I think that they present a wonderful contrast, an example of two ways of thinking about taste that are separate, but also in a way, interdependent. So to take the um, African-American community in Philadelphia first, I think that what is being suggested there is that that community is exhibiting what the Scottish philosophers of the 18th century, people like Lord Kames, defined as a taste that is connected to an inner moral sense so taste is something that is inside of you and that finds expression inside and then moves outside. And so I'm just going to read a few quotes. This idea of moral sense holds that every human being is born with the capacity for moral reasoning, allowing him or her to apprehend right and wrong in feeling, thought, action, and even aesthetic judgment. So one of the Scottish philosophers, a man by the name of Lord Keynes, he uh, comes up with a metaphor 
that depicts taste as a plant that grows naturally but needs constant care and cultivation. And here's a quote from him. Um, Beginning with the definition of taste, Keynes then conjoins it to moral sense. Taste is a plant that grows naturally in many soils, but without culture, scarce to perfection in any soil. It is susceptible of much refinement, and it is, by proper care, greatly improved. In this respect, a taste in the fine arts goes hand in hand with the moral sense, to which indeed it is nearly allied. Both of them discover what is right and what is wrong. Fashion, temper, and education have an influence to vitiate both or to preserve them pure and untainted. Neither of them are arbitrary or local, being rooted in human nature and governed by principles common to all men. So you can see how for late 18th century, 19th, early 19th century African-Americans, the appeal of this of philosophy, which says that taste is inside, it's accessible to absolutely anybody who's willing to cultivate it. Um, and then from there, uh, later philosophers, Adam Smith is the great example, extends outward and adds to the idea of innate um, innate moral sense, the concept of sympathy. And so sympathy is the idea to look at others. We're not closed in on ourselves, just being morally sensible, but we're looking outward and we see people who are in distress, who are suffering. And we then extend our pity, our compassion, our sympathy um, to them. So I think that actually the Easter Sunday section with the Scott family in Philadelphia is a wonderful example of this kind of taste. What we see is the dignity, the quietness, the contemplation of the of African Americans um, and the way then they are exhibiting taste and also sympathy. So the sympathy goes from the congregation to Peggy who discovers her son who the father had taken um, at his birth and basically given up for adoption. She discovers that he's dead. She goes to the funeral, her son's funeral, and the sympathy that the congregation extends to her and also the sympathy then that we as viewers of the um of the Gilded Age extend to her. So that to me is a great example of how innate moral sense and sympathy work. The contrast with the white elite, uh, both old money and new money, couldn't be greater. Because despite everything, not everybody has innate moral sense and and taste. Um, Some people just aren't able to cultivate it um, and don't have it. But what happens is that in any social setting, if you're not living all by yourself, taste gets exteriorized and can become a spectacle. And I think that that's what we see with Easter Sunday among white people, among the Manhattan white people. They're in a social setting. Taste becomes exteriorized. It's no longer just a a social value, but it's exhibited then through the acquisition and the display of material artifacts, especially fashion. So just think of what that Easter Sunday in New York is about. It is all about fashion. You see each individual woman coming in, the focus on the fashion, the bustle, the clothes, the hats. The hats are unbelievable. (laughs) To this day. (laughs) Yeah, they're absolutely um, um, unbelievable. And so what is happening here, and I'm referencing then uh, the French philosopher Bourdieu and also Roland Barthes, what they say what in Barthes in particular talks about uh, fashion as a linguistic code. It's like a language, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and the, peop- the people in the social group 
know the language. So it creates what Bourdieu calls distinction. The distinction belongs the, the, to the the inner the inside group, the insiders, and everybody else is excluded. So it's very exclusionary. So it functions as a linguistic code that everybody in that social group has to be must be aware of. So I know what to wear on Easter Sunday, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in this sense, taste as spectacle is defined by the group. It's what belongs to the social group. But then you don't want to be like everybody else in the social group. You want to, you know, mark your own individuality. And that, I think, is also what we see um, on this Easter Sunday. And that leads to extra extravagance. So I know the colors. I know the bustle. I know the hat. But I'm really going to call attention to myself I'm going to make myself a spectacle by becoming, uh, by by going one step further to assert my individuality, and that becomes extravagance. So I was looking at some of the hats in a rerun. I was going through them, and they are like crazy, really crazy. Um, so that that's my comment. Those are two different kinds of tastes that are at work there. And I think that the what Fellows is saying, again, in this juxtaposition, juxtaposition of main plot and subplot is a maybe not so subtle dig at the white elites, right? Yeah. So this leads me to the whole issue of community. And I'll just say some words briefly here. So there are communities that appear in each setting. And I think that what we can say is that within the white community, in this episode, and really in, I think, all the others, maybe with the exception of Marion, um, we see very little sympathy, no real caring for other people. But what we see is competition, competition, competition. And that exists in dress, in entertaining. Think of last season and the need to set the table properly. And so Bannister sets it properly, but he's the butler of the Van Rynes. But church cannot set a table properly. Um, and this sense of group belonging, of course, Birthers is new money and no way that the group is going to allow her into the old money. And that's shown by whether she can get a box at the Academy of Music. The other thing about if we turn it to the black community, um, we see that what is at dis on display here is a great deal of sympathy. So at the funeral and afterwards, we're the child's adopted father comes along and there's a huge dinner, uh, Sunday dinner uh, for the Scots, but also for family. And you just hear the noise in the background where it's so convivial, etc. cetera. Um, but the other, so it's, it's a, it's a community that is shown to be incredibly sympathetic one towards the other but that is the Philadelphia community. And one of the things I would have to say is, I, and I said earlier, I'm somewhat disappointed that we don't see a larger black community in Brooklyn. And um, I think that's a mistake. I think it's short-sighted of fellows. Yeah, it shows that, that the black community is a subplot, not the main mm. plot. Well, Carla, having read... Uh, Black Gotham and Doers of the Word, and also um, having heard some of your other uh, presentations, um, Michelle and I both are really hungry to see what was the life like for the larger Black community. And uh, in Black Gotham, you describe the literary societies, the musical societies, the kinds of social events. Could you paint a picture for us of what that life was like, what the Black community, uh, particularly this the Black middle class, you know, the, the entrepreneurs, the business owners, the teachers, educated uh, 
folks, professionals, et cetera. What was that life like? Um, if we were entering that world, what would we find in those musical and literary societies? So this is another place where I think that Julian Fellows and his team fell down or could have done a lot more. And in my notes, I have the word pleasure. And this is not just true of Julian Fellows. It's true across the board, even in my field today. So maybe up until the Harlem Renaissance, the depiction, the reconstruction of the lives of 19th century Black New Yorkers in the South under slavery, but also in the North, uh, and slavery is suffering, right? Um, Forced labor, not owning yourself, not being able to own your children. But in the North, it's always presented as a life of duty and obligation. So, So that the thinking is a Black man, a Black woman, gets up in the morning and all throughout the day says, I have an obligation. I have a duty to my race. I'm a race man. I'm a race woman. And we see that in the Gilded Age when Peggy is, she's the one young person in the Gilded Age, um, in the Black community in the Gilded Age. And she is shown to be devoting herself to a life of obligation and duty, and not exhibiting pleasure. So the point in writing Black Gotham was indeed to show that uh, Black people, the Black elite, uh, this was the one example in Black Brooklyn, but basically that Blacks did experience pleasure. So when you ask me about that, um, there are all kinds of things I can talk about. Music was incredibly important, and very appropriately, Julian Fellows had Dorothy Scott in an early scene last season playing the piano, and I found out that it was um, Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 2, the Pathétique, Um, and that was quite appropriate. Uh, So music was really important to the Black elite in this period in Boston and elsewhere. Uh, Music was taught in the colored school system, was an important part of it. Um, And also uh, there was the establishment of different music clubs or schools. So one was the Lyric Swan Club. So there was a lot of singing that went on. Uh, Another was the Mendelssohn School of Music. And this was a club to which my great-grandfather, Philip White, so who was the inspiration for Arthur Scott, they were both pharmacists, uh, he was one of the founders. And his oldest daughter, Ellie, um, taught music there. Uh, And the name is not incidental because the very famous music society in the New York area was the Mendelssohn Glee Club, uh, which was for which was the white Manhattanites. And so they called it the Mendelssohn School of Music. So Mendelssohn was very popular at the time, and there's a lineage, right, going from Beethoven to Mendelssohn and on down the line. So that was something that is very important. Another would be um, literature. So I know that my great-grandfather read Shakespeare. Um, He had, uh, my great-grandfather also as of 1850 in the census, uh, it says that he owned a piano. So I think it's really (laughs) interesting that the census says piano owner. Um, But he also uh, loved literature so he, he had copies of Shakespeare, he had copies of Dante, and that I think was typical of the Black population uh, at the time. Uh, in terms of art, I think that's also really important. So what we see is this emphasis on art among the white community, that is Marion, 
who um, avocation that's becoming a vocation is in doing watercolors. And then we find out that aunt really loves watercolors and Reverend Forte, who is um, courting her, um, takes her to a gallery uh, on uh, uh, the Ross Gallery, I think it's called, on 42nd, 43rd Street. And that would have been a moment when you could have shown um, Black elites from Brooklyn also going to view art and really caring about art. We know that in the 1850s, so before the Civil War, in a series of columns in Frederick Douglass's paper, uh, uh, some of the correspondents write about going down to Goupil's Gallery. That was a gallery that was founded in Paris, I think, but then spread. There were uh, outlets, there were um, art galleries, Goupil's established in London and New York and so forth. And they showed pretty much middle-brow art, but um, Blacks went, uh, Black Manhattanites, Black Brooklynites went and really enjoyed it. And then, as I write about in my book, we have my great-grandfather, Philip White, who I think quite amazingly gets a subscription at the Metropolitan Museum of Art when it is shortly after it opens. So the Met starts in 1870s. The um, white elite is looking over its shoulder at Philadelphia and Boston saying, oh, they have art museums and we don't. So we're going to establish uh, an art museum. And one of the founders is um, a woman by the name of Catherine Lorillard Wolf, who had connections to my great-grandfather and to St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which was the church, my great-grandfather's church. And she gave her collection to the Met at its founding. And it had 120 paintings and 22 watercolors. So watercolors were indeed uh, popular. And uh, most of what she had was drawn from uh, European artists, but with some representation from the Barbizon painters. Later on, Hudson School River painters were invited, uh, were bought and shown. And even later, there was an acquisition of old European masters, Van Dyck's, Franz Hals, uh, Manet, Turner, works attributed to Rembrandt, Rubens, and Gainsborough. So that's a pretty amazing collection. I'll say. And in 1875, the Met is falling on hard times. They want to make more money. By now, it's been kind of like a independent club of the wealthy who give, and they open up to subscriptions. And my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White, black man, although very fair-skinned, was uh, uh, got a subscription uh, to the Met. So you need, he was allowed to go on days when it was closed to public. He got extra tickets for his friends. He got to give receptions given by the trustees. He got the annual reports. He got a set of handbooks, et cetera, et cetera. So he was able to come and go very freely. So you need to imagine him and his family, Ellie, Cornelia, Dorothy, um, um, you know, having access to all this art and going and enjoying it and taking real pleasure in it, cultivating taste through their innate moral sense. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating, Carla, because I – when you were explaining how the Met came about first through a private collection, that actually is the history of the Smithsonian as well. And a number of the Smithsonian museums, the reason they have the collections they have, and some of them often feel a little odd, is because they started with private collections. So that, right. that's really interesting. Right, yeah. right. So one of the things that Catherine Lorillard Wolf had done so she's a descendant of the Lorillard tobacco family, and she was immensely wealthy. I think that when she gave her collection to the Met, my, if my memory serves me correctly, she insisted that they be kept together in a room, a room one, two rooms, whatever, 
labeled um, the um, the Kathleen Lorillard Wolf collection. And recently, I think in the at the end of the twentieth century, they managed to get around that and disbanded the room and spread her stuff all over. So, so much for wills. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making me think about um, what you said earlier regarding taste in the Easter um, parade, as we see in the Gilded Age, and now the Met Costume Institute is yes. the hot ticket, um, which brings back the fashion and taste and the external and the material. Yeah, absolutely. And that's perfect. I hadn't thought of that. That's really that's really interesting. It's exact and it's over the top, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who can outdo who? It's got very little to do with any kind of innate moral sense. So I want to know that the black elite in Brooklyn did throw parties and they did dress up. And if you go to T. Thomas Fortune's newspapers, it's first called the Globe, and then that goes defunct. It's followed by the Freeman, and that goes defunct, and then finally the New York Age. Uh, so I think it's in the Freeman that um, there's a society page um, in all of them, and it. I think it's in the Freeman that they uh, T. Thomas Fortune starts giving a, accounts of parties, uh, dinners, but also. Um, Deputant parties for young girls. He has a very vivid account of Ellie, so Philip White's oldest daughter, her debutante party, and I'll just read some of it. It takes place in the White's splendid home, which for the occasion was made odorous with beautiful natural flowers, while all the arrangements were rich in appointments. The dancing begins at 10 p.m. when the young buds, as the girls were called, were introduced into the festivities of social life. The ladies wore rich and elaborate costumes. Ellie was decked out in white Syrah, oriental lace, front, hyacinths, and diamonds. The older women wore more conservative attire. Elizabeth, that is Ellie's... um, mother and Philip's wife was in black Syrah and natural flowers and Cornelia, that's a step uh, great, great grandmother uh, in black silk. Ellie received many beautiful and valuable presents among them, two silk dresses from her parents and a diamond ring from Mrs. Guignol. And then somewhat later, Cornelia who is my grandmother, had a ball in her honor that was thrown by the Mars family. So Ellie's husband was a Mars, and it was called a calico ball. But in the write-up, it says calico, pure and simple, was conspicuously absent. But the (laughs) many beautiful combinations of sateens and other materials formed a scintillation of moving colors that dazzled the beholder. So there they might be kind of coming close to what's going on in Manhattan. And the men, to vary the monotony of their evening dress, uh, they, uh, they displaced the usual expanse of white above the low-cut vest with figured or colored patterns and wearing the colors of the lady of their choice in a necktie or in a broad ribbon passing, passing diagonally across the breast. So to wear your lady's colors, the woman that you're courting, goes back to the Middle Ages, right? And to yeah. those arguments. Uh, yeah. And then just a note on the food, the supper consisted of attempting and toothsome menu, including oysters, salad, terrapin, tongue, creams, charlottes, fruits, sauternes, and champagne. So there is also that, that, that Blacks are not about to be outdone um, by the white society. And that, again, is something that Julian Fellows could have shown. Maybe he's going to show it in future episodes, but we haven't seen it yet. 
Yeah. I remember doing uh, research for some of my walking tours here in Washington, D.C., and going online and reading from the Library of Congress digital collections, the society pages of the Washington Bee. And they would be so much fun. I mean, for our listeners, uh, go online to the Library of Congress or any library, New York Public Library, and read some of these society notices and reports. They are so much fun. Carla, I hope you're going to include more of those in your next book. Yeah, yeah, there will there will definitely be more. But my question is, where did all the diamonds go? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were throwing diamonds around. I would like some diamonds. <laughs> You've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now, back to our podcast conversation. Well, this year in the Gilded Age, um, speaking of practicality, duty, um, purpose for African-Americans, we go to the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, which was founded by Booker T. Washington. And Peggy is impressed with Booker T. Washington's vision, but T. Thomas Fortune, her editor, he's not totally convinced about Washington's theories about the advantages of vocational training as the key to upward mobility without liberal arts education. So we're having those same debates today about the role of education and upward mobility. Based on what you found in your family history in New York, what side would your family members that you just mentioned, even, would have taken in that debate? Philip White took both. Mm. Ah. So let me just rehearse a little bit what Peggy and T. Thomas Fortune are saying. So Booker T. Washington, as you know, is, is well known for his insistence or his promotion of industrial labor. Um, and he's also a great, great self-promoter. And we see that when uh, T. Thomas Fortune and Peggy get down to Alabama. He's there meeting them at the train station. He's all puffed up. And this white man says hello to him in a sign of respect. And he's oh so proud. And it is true that he depended a lot on white th- philanthropy. So he turned extensively to whites uh, to promote his vision. Um, and whites were happy to do that because the vision accorded with theirs, uh, industrial education. So the figure from Brooklyn who go, who's giving money for this new dormitory um, is that's very realistic that uh, Booker T. Washington would have, would have done it. The point is, of course, that he gets respect from the white townsmen or superficial respect, a hello, but it's also emphasized that in the town, that in Tuskegee, that white supremacy is very alive and well. So Booker T. Washington's philosophy versus W.E.B. Du Bois, and I'll come to Du Bois in a, in a moment, his philosophy stems out of the fact that he's in the South and that the South, despite what Peggy or T. Thomas Fortune say, is a much more dangerous place for Blacks than the North. The North, it's more likely to be harassment, daily, unpleasant, an occasional death. In the South, it's daily fear of dying and many, many lynchings. So from that perspective, Booker T. Washington is saying, given that I'm here in the South, what's the best thing that I can do for my people? And he comes up with a policy that people have since labeled accommodationist, accommodating to whites. So what he does is he says, we will confine ourselves to manual labor, farming, 
building buildings. So at Tuskegee, Tuskegee, the students build the buildings, they farm. And he sees that as a way for blacks to have employment, to get jobs, while at the same time accommodating to their environment and not being killed or lynched. He does have this, or Peggy has this um, moment when she uh, says that what Booker T. Washington did want, had hoped for, was teacher training, but that it went nowhere. And Du Bois is well known for the phrase of the talented 10th. He's in New York. He grows up in Massachusetts. He ends up in New York. Sure, he's harassed all the time, but I don't think he fears for his life on a daily basis. And what he sees is the larger context. And what he wants more than, there's several things he wants. What he wants is basically teacher training. He wants to educate young black men and women so that they become a cadre of teachers who will then teach black youth. He does not want to leave the education of black youth up to whites. He says, we must do the job of education. And that's his emphasis on the talented 10th. Along with that, he wants civil rights He wants, in particular, the right to vote, because he said without the right to vote, without gaining a foothold in party politics, we will never be able to progress. We need to get our congressmen in there. We need need to vote. We need to vote for people that will support us, and then we need to get our own people in there. So that is the basic difference. But the fact is, is that I think that Booker T. Washington understood the importance of teacher training, but couldn't do it from where he was. W.E.B. Du Bois understood the importance of manual labor. He talks about it. He says that's important. He talks about the dignity of labor, but he wants something more. And the last thing then is the idea of how fast, you know, with all deliberate speed or whatever. And what Booker T. Washington wanted was basically from where he was, he's like, this is going to take time. From where I stand, this will take time. We cannot hurry this process. Whereas Du Bois wants now, now, now. We need to do it now. So in that in that episode, there's... It, I think it's T. Thomas Fortune who said, should blacks creep, which is what Booker T. Washington wants, or should they fight, which is what Du Bois wants. And what Peggy likes, she she's really the, the practical one of the bunch. What she likes is the fact that Booker T. Washington cares about colored people and is invested, colored people as he calls them, and is invested his life to having to opening doors for colored people so that they can in turn help others. And she sees it as a step in the right direction. So I think she understands that maybe, you know, it's all deliberate speed or less speed, but it can, it's a process that cannot be rushed. Interestingly enough, though, T. Thomas Fortune was it was a slave he was born a slave and he mentions that so it might be that peggy was born as a free woman might say you know we're, let's work on it let's move ahead but let's not rush whereas t thomas fortune born a slave is like let's fight let let us fight The really interesting thing is that T. Thomas Fortune ends up in Booker T. Washington's camp, and he subsumes his own career in order to ghostwrite Booker T. Washington's biography. And there is a fabulous book by... Slavery? uh, 
Elizabeth McHenry has a wonderful book, and she has a chapter in there about how T. Thomas Fortune just put all of his own things aside to pro- help Booker T. Washington promote himself, including writing. And you'll have to check to see whether it's up from slavery. I should have checked, but I didn't. Or maybe another one of his autobiographical writings. So there we have it. So from the point of my view of my great-grandfather, he thought that you could do both. He really believed in Black independence, Black autonomy. So he wanted... Um, African-Americans to get jobs where they would be autonomous and self-sufficient, whether it was owning a drugstore or, you know, being a carpenter or uh, building buildings or whatever. At the same time, you can see because of his love of literature and art and so forth, he really believed in the talented 10th. So the last element of, of, Du Bois's, there are many reasons for for his promotion of his ideology, but the last one, the souls of black folk, you can't just nourish the body, you have to nourish the soul. And here we actually come back to something that is a version of, uh, of the Scottish Enlightenment, when he has that famous uh, paragraph at the end of one of his chapters, I sit next to Shakespeare or Balzac and he winceth not. I walk down the hallway arm in arm with Dante, whatever, and he, whatever. And the importance of literature, of the arts in nourishing the soul. So that was something that was very important to him. So I think that... Du Bois certainly wanted to make his conflict with Booker T. Washington a binary, a a stark binary of either or. And that's his, I think, the third chapter of Souls of Black Folk. I think that many people of the period, so my great-grandfather, my my grandfather, um, saw it, did not see it as an either or, but both and. And I think that because Du Bois has been the favored son going, his legacy, the legacy has favored Du Bois over Booker T. Washington, we tend to take the Du Boisian view and to see it as a binary, whereas my speculation, I won't say for sure, uh, I think it's not a binary, but it's much more of a both end. Yeah. Carla, I do want your opinion. This is um, kind of off topic because for people who are watching the Gilded Age and seeing Booker T. Washington and his wife for the first time and hearing this story, one thing that um, is not reflected is that they were very fair people, fair-skinned people in real life, Booker T. Washington, especially his wife. Especially his wife. Do you think that had any um impact or influence in in terms of how Booker T Washington was received and uh, by white philanthropists or even black philanthropists when we talk about color issues so i've seen images of him he is lightish skinned but identifiably black yeah. So I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but the really interesting question is, why did Julian Fellows darken all of his characters? So my father, my great grandfather Philip White was pretty lily white, and he could pass. And my guess is that he engaged in strategic passing. So maybe he got into the the Met must have known. I mean, Catherine Lorillard Wolf knew that he was. Black, she um, bought the one of the St. Philip's Episcopal uh, Church building um, to for a church for Italian immigrants, and she bought it from Philip White. So um, they were the ones who negotiated the deal. So she knew, and my guess is that others did. But he could he could have engaged in strategic passing and gone there, and people would not have 
not have known at, um, at all. Uh, but Julian Fellows chose to make to make Arthur Scott dark-skinned, and he chose to make Booker T. Washington darker-skinned as well. So I am waiting since um, this is on the side, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. There's a lot of imposture within the white community, people who are passing themselves off as something they're not. So you have Turner, who is now the Duchess or, or the Lady Win- Winterston. Mrs. Or Winterton, I think her name is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Enid. Enid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we also have the butler who was once a banker, right? And now his daughter, Flora, has married Mr. McNeil, and Mr. McNeil wants to banish him to, to San Francisco. California, to San Francisco. And I'm waiting for a passing episode to happen in the black community. Yeah, somebody that, who decides to pass. That would because, be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it should be done and could could be done. Passing is so often presented as an object of sh- of some of a shameful act and uh, as something to look down upon. And I'm not at all sure that 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 was true in all cases. I think that the black community often recognized that necessity was just that necessity, and if you had to pass, you passed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had a little bit of that conversation when we talked about the Nella Larson uh, film adaptation of Passing as well. Yeah, with Emily but, Bernard. Yeah. Oh, you, right. Right. Yeah. Well, the, what's interesting is you're you're talking. There are a lot of things going through my mind. One is that even within the uh, old money, new money community of the whites in Manhattan, there is kind of the you know Aunt Ada who loves art and is the sensitive soul and is more representative of the kind of taste you talked about as an inner quality, and actually Aunt Agnes is a little bit more about the the credentials, which in some sense are external and the things you don't have control over, like how when did your ancestors come and how long you've been wealthy, et cetera. So that's that's interesting as I think about it. But um, she's also she's also a mixed bag. Yes. <laughs> right from the beginning, she when she looks at Peggy's handwriting she said, who taught you to write like that? Yeah. And then she remarks on her fine penmanship. And handwriting, as I wrote about in an article, is a marker of taste. So she recognizes. And when everybody would be like Armstrong and just say, oh, you're black. Right. Leave, um, Aunt Agnes recognizes that Peggy has taste. And Peggy does not let her down. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the other uh, pieces that are being woven through this have to do with both education and labor. And we see, um, I mean, I, I'm remembering from Downton Abbey, people look down on you if you were a member of the merchant class or if you were a member, even if you were a professional like a doctor or a lawyer, you know, a solicitor. But in this, we have different kinds of hierarchies around labor. And there are ways that it depends on where you come from in society, uh, how you're viewed. So for instance, we have Dorothy, who's a teacher in the Black community, and that's a very respected position. We have Marion, who's teaching watercolors at a girls' school, and Aunt Agnes is outraged about that. And then we have, as you were saying, the people who have, you know, come from uh, the servant class or even or fallen from the professional class into the servant class. And that's an issue. And then we have these strikers, these union people, these union men in Pittsburgh uh, who work for your George Russell types, the robber barons. Um and, and as I'm looking at it, I'm feeling like 
there are legacies that we've inherited around our attitude about work and how we view work in the United States and how we view class and work. Um, what do you see as kind of like the, um, what would I say? This, what's the story being told about work and class in the Gilded Age in America? So I think it's more clear among whites because that's the main plot and less clear with blacks because that's the subplot. So I think that class and labor is an argument for individualism and competition. Mm. And I think that that plays itself out both in the upstairs-downstairs plot and then also in the um, capital labor plot. So if you take the upstairs-downstairs, you have the figure of Armstrong, and she is Mrs. Armstrong, and she is a very competitive person and wants to keep Peggy down. Um, It's not clear what Armstrong's background is, My guess is that she's not Irish, but is British um, and has fallen on hard times. She's taking care of her sick mother in extremely dilapidated tenement. We give her compassion for that. She's taking care of her mother. She has a family. We don't see the family of any of the others. They're like, they popped out of nowhere. Yeah, we were Um, noticing that. Yeah. 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 Um, And, you know, so she is that expression of individualism and competition that makes her be so mean to everybody, but especially to Peggy. I think that there's a lot of social, there's a lot of, there's class fluidity and a lot of social anxiety about that. So classes can't rise and fall, but individuals can. Mm. So Turner rises and, you know, that's like shocking. (laughs) And um, so there is, I think, a lot of anxiety about individuals being able, you know, to pass through, through different, through different classes. Um, And on the level of, social groups, there's a determination that that won't happen. So that brings us to capital and labor. So George Russell is nothing if not a robber baron and a rugged individualist who is just thinks in terms of the individual. So when he calls Henderson up to New York, he's convinced that he can buy Henderson off. I'll give you a position in management and a lot of money. And Henderson is, well, what about my people? What good does that do if it's just me and not my people? And they simply don't understand each other. They simply don't talk the same language. Um, And then when Henderson goes back to his union um, brethren, in Pittsburgh and tells them what happens. And they have this discussion about how they need to stand together, that Russell is going to try and divide them by throwing them more money and also by pitting immigrants against native born and that they need to forestall that. So there's this real sense of collectivity um, that is at work there. If you read Du Bois' especially his later work uh, on Reconstruction. I think it's called Black Reconstruction. I think that's what it's called. He talks about this moment in American history as the great failure of labor, when this could have been the moment when labor could have united across racial lines, the Knights of Labor, the Knights of Columbus, I don't know what, across racial lines against capital, And that didn't happen. The racial lines just came installed. So, you know, reinforced. So we really don't hear anything about, uh, about black, 
about black labor, about blacks in the labor force. When we come to the black community here again is something where I feel that Julian Fellows could have done more because we really don't see very much of what's going on in the black community. And there, there are class divisions, but that's, those are not portrayed. Maybe that's to come. So T. Thomas Fortune himself is a great example of black mobility. He's born a slave in the South, in Florida. He gets freed. He and his family get freed at emancipation. He goes and works for a newspaper of Jackson in Jacksonville. He makes his way up north. He stops at Howard at, in Washington, D.C., and goes to Howard um, Law School, but never gets a degree, and then comes up to New York, and he makes it. But he's got a lot of cautionary language telling Black immigrants, you better not come to New York. Mm, wow. <laughs> the city is just too much for you. You won't be able to handle it. Um, you better stay down there where you are. But I think what he really meant was, if you are if you want to come up to the North, to New York, you need to be prepared um, for an unwelcoming environment, but also to learn how to get by, yeah. which is education, 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 which is what he did. Yeah. Yeah. The 19th century isn't sounding too different from some of the same conversations we're having today in the 21st. Right. Yeah. Carla, we, we, I love those questions like, what if? Um, I think we've um, come up with some ideas. If there was going to be a spinoff of the Gilded Age, I, I guess let's start with the Scott family because- No, of the Scott talked, family. Of the yeah. Scott family. We've talked a lot about the Scott <laughs> and family. And I guess we insert those pieces that we find missing um, in the story. What would that look like? I mean, we've mentioned a passing story, and we mentioned diamonds being thrown around. <laughs> what would you like to see if there was a spinoff with the Scott family? So I would love to see a greater elaboration. I'd like to see the Scott family become the main plot, and the white Manhattanites could be the subplot. One of the things that has bothered me is that there are no future generations right now in the black community. T. Thomas Fortune and his wife, he says a son died and Peggy's son has died. So the main plot is filled with heirs, just filled. Yeah. Everybody's talking about heirs. And in the last segment I saw, Bertha says to Mrs. Blaine, who um, the uh, the widow's 20 years older than um, her son, Larry. You, you're absolutely no good for him. You won't produce an heir. And she literally says that. That yes. we have Oscar, who's gay. Can he produce an heir? Um, you know, and then Gladys has got to be married off to produce an heir. So there are all these children who are potentially productive and could produce heirs. And we don't have any of that in the black subplot. So, and that fits in, I think, unfortunately, with this theory of racial extinction. In the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, uh, white sociologists, which is, and also insurance people, were just filled with theories of black extinction, where they said blacks in freedom cannot possibly survive. They're going to be extinct because they're of their innate immorality and criminality and bestiality and because of their external, their inability to adapt to new social and economic circumstances, that's very Darwinian. So I would like to see an emphasis on the next generation. I would also like to see a larger Black community. So who are the Scots, Arthur and Dorothy's friends? who are Peggy's friends, you yes. know, when they get together, what does it look like going to church? Um, you know, um, on weekends, the black community, uh, black elite in Brooklyn went out to Seacliff in Long Island. 
and they had picnics and they stayed at different boarding houses and they played baseball and all of that stuff. And, you know, I would like to see a broader community. And then I would also like to see some of the tensions, the um, tensions, the, you know, class tensions. Uh, suppose Arthur had a an apprentice. Um, yes. And what would happen there? I mean, or developing the maid. I think her name was Ellen, developing the figure of the maid. What was their life like? Um, were the tensions the same as in the black as in the white community or not? So those are definitely some of the things I'd like to see. Yeah, I'd love to see that series too. And I don't have to see Newport again. I would love to see Black We've been to Newport. at the seaside, right? <laughs> Having yeah. picnics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they had picnics. They played, and the, the men rode out on bicycles and yeah. the young ladies went out in carriages and they had picnics and they played baseball games and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Carla, for joining us on the podcast. Again, yeah, this Again. is great. Yeah. What a you rich world great. you created for us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For our listeners, season two of The Gilded Age is currently available on HBO and the streaming service Max. You can also stream season one on Max. Just a reminder, fees are required. We invite you to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy the conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters and enjoy past episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Visit our website at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and where you can purchase copies of Black Gotham. You can find our bonus episodes on women and power in the Gilded Age in addition to episode 28, our first conversation with Carla L. Peterson, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michon Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michon Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michon Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.